Welcome to episode 157 of Control the Controllables. In a big week in the in the tennis world, I have to mention the retirement of Ash Barty. A massive congratulations from all at Control the Controllables on an incredible career. I think it's incredibly brave for somebody aged 25 to to make that decision to to go against almost what is expected, what is the norm. You know, she's made sure she's looked after herself first and foremost, for her loved ones around her. A three-time Grand Slam champion. We think of Serena Williams. You know, she's still desperate to be to be pushing towards number twenty-four Grand Slam. And Ash didn't have that. You know, she she'd had the motivation to enjoy herself, to to push herself to the limits. And fair play to her for making that decision. And that means we have a new world number one on the female side. And obviously a big friend of ours at, at the podcast, Iga Sviantek. A massive congratulations. I, I believe the youngest woman since Caroline Wozniacki to move into that number one spot. And it doesn't seem to have affected her at all as of yet. She's won her first couple of matches in Miami and is going strong and is certainly someone who will carry that mantle incredibly well. A second well done as well for world number one who's been on the podcast in Joe Salisbury who overnight after his win and Mekdic and Pavic loss will move into the number one spot in the world on Monday. If you want to listen to either of their podcasts, Eager was episode 114 and Joe was episode 132. Both beautiful, humble interviews that, that we had had the opportunity to have on the podcast and would strongly recommend those. And now to today's episode, we've talked for a while about wanting to bring this subject to the podcast. It should be fun. It should be enjoyable. And if people are getting to that situation where they can't accept the loss, perhaps that's where we're getting towards those problems. But yeah, it, it, it's it's a real shame, isn't it, that that starts to sometimes impact on, on players that may have gone out, given their absolute best, and then they come off the court and they're, they're met with this tirade of abuse because, you know, somebody's lost 20 quid on them that, you know, that didn't have that money to lose. A big topic, a big subject in the sport of tennis, gambling. Does gambling and gambling companies mix with tennis? You know, you will hear many different sides of it. I've struggled to get anybody to come and talk about this. And thankfully, Dave Pilgrim, who has had 20, 25 years of experience in the industry, currently works at Skybet, got the got the clearance from, from his company and came on to speak to me for us to delve into all of the different sides, the good, the bad and the ugly. It's a topic that brings polarizing opinions for and against, but I hope you enjoy the episode and you can see that we continue trying to get under the bonnet of the sport at all the levels. I'm going to pass you over to Dave Pilgrim. So Dave Pilgrim, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Hello, how are you? All good. I'm great, Dave, and a, and a big thank you for for coming on. We we have what a lot of listeners will see as the a taboo topic, you know. Anticipation freezes at this point as we're we're going to be talking about gambling in tennis, you know. And as as someone who has got a lot of experience in in the industry, 
You know, a lot of people look at betting companies in, in quite a negative terms when, when it comes up and almost they bear the brunt of quite a lot of the blame that people like to give at times. So to start us off, what would your message be to those listeners regarding gambling in tennis? Um, well, I, th I think uh, hopefully today I'll be able to answer some of your questions, break down some of the um the, the queries, the worries that people have about it. Um, first and foremost, I suppose the most important thing is that betting is a great thing. People enjoy doing it, but always do it responsibly. Keep stakes small, keep it fun. And if, you know, the, as the message goes, if the fun stops, stop. It, it's, you know, it's something that can add a lot of enjoyment um, done responsibly and correctly. And hopefully I can sort of explain a little bit about how all that works today. And, and so the listeners know, Dave, give us give us a little bit about, I know you're working currently at Skybet, uh, but if you you give us a little bit on how you got into the industry and, and what your what your background and experience is involving tennis as well within that. Um, well, I, I came into the industry originally as a punter, actually. I used to bet with Skybet and uh, I used to, to work for uh, a little odds comparison firm in London um, about 20 years ago. Um, and it was through that that I originally started doing some outside compiling for Skybet. So I'd send in my tissue prices for things like Rally and Formula One, um, which would help them price those up. Um, and then I came up for an interview. Uh, it would have been about, I think it was 2004 it was. Um, and in the interview, I'd come up thinking they'll be talking to me about motor racing, all these things. And very quickly, it, it transpired they definitely needed a tennis compiler. And at the time, I was definitely the sort of person that watched Wimbledon, um, didn't watch an awful lot of tennis at the time. Um, I had to very quickly uh, make out that I was a, a really big tennis expert in the interview, try and bluff my way through it. Fortunately, that was successful. Um, and then I spent um, probably the first three years of, of my career at Skybet working almost exclusively on tennis. Um, and yeah, uh, went through the trading team there. Um, and then... Uh, headed up the sports team for a while and then subsequent to that I've moved more into the product development side of stuff so not directly involved in all of the odds compilation um, and that side of things anymore um, but still have a really interest uh, really strong interest in the industry as a whole and, and how things have developed over the last few years. I think tennis is such a it's such an interesting sport and again for for myself who who's been involved in tennis for 35 years now a lot of our listeners you know there's quite a niche market in terms of people listening to this podcast tennis tennis is their thing and and I think what we've seen over the years you maybe used to be able to bet on who won Wimbledon and and it was you know you'd put your you'd put your ten pound bet maybe on on Andre Andre Agassi and then you'd maybe have a little go at one of the Brits for for ten pound. But as it's gone, the markets now are, there's so many of them that you're able to to put a bet on. And and it just with a little bit of research, it's quite easy to work out now that tennis is one of the biggest gambling markets markets out there and and is that why they were looking to start putting experts into into that space within the industry uh yeah definitely um you know t tennis is a big sport um tennis uh, for book for most bookmakers it's the third or fourth biggest sport um behind horse racing football and then basketball and tennis come along and one of the great things um, for bookmakers for tennis is it kind of follows the sun and we'll have tours going on um, in Asia at the same time as we've got tours going on in South America um, and maybe European tournament as well. So there's kind of tennis all through the day. Um, there's lots of different tours going on. So, so there's lots on really. And it's great for live betting because obviously the, the way the fixtures are scheduled following on from one another, there's pretty much something going on all the way through the day. So it's, it's a really good sport for bookmakers in that sense. Absolutely. And we'll get into some of those things because I guess people that have gambling addictions, people that like to put on their next bet, 
you know, tennis is, gives you a point every 20, 30 seconds, you know, but that also opens up the window to try and fix the matches because you're not, you don't have to truly fix a, a, a full match. You know, you can actually just fix a point or two uh, that, that might not ha- impact, impact the match. But before we go there, Dave, the other thing that I think was really interesting when we spoke on the phone is you talked about the gender side of, of gambling within tennis and where if we're talking about football bets, I think you said the ratio was like 150 to one, whereas whereas within tennis, it's a little bit more 50-50. And, and I guess that's, that's, that's a positive that we're, we're getting that out and, and we're showcasing a quality within the sport as well. It is, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, I think the numbers I looked at showed that, that something like, I think in football, on our top 50, 50 competitions, um, you know, our, our biggest uh, staking competitions in football, it's only 0.5% of stakes are placed on the women's game. It's nearly all exclusively on the men's. Um, tennis, it's um, 66% of stakes broadly go on the men's game, 33% on the women. And that actually gets even closer when you get to the Grand Slams. So there's genuine interest um, from, you know, betters to, to bet on the ladies' game, which just isn't the case in a lot of a lot of other sports. Um, whether that's been impacted by things Things like the prize money, um, you know, I know Wimbledon, obviously one of the, the, the front runners in that and making sure that, that prize money was equal, whether that's something that's contributed towards it, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's really quite surprising, actually, when you think about how the, the men's game particularly has been dominated by such sort of superstars in, you know, Nadal and Federer, Djokovic and, and Murray over the last you know 15 years. It's actually quite surprising that the women's game is so close behind it in terms of the interest it generates with, um, you know, with betters and customers. And, and in terms of doing those markets, we go back to you, 2004. It, it really hits me, again, someone that's in the industry. You have to have a pretty strong expertise to be getting it right because the variables of, of court surface, the variables of player schedules, you know, you have a pretty good idea in tennis that actually if someone's had a good week or two, you know, the chances are they're going to be tired and going to be a big scalp, maybe maybe in week three. You know, the previous history, some players just don't like the balls, don't like, you know, Indian Wells happened last week. The balls traditionally bounce around. It's quite thin air. You know, some people just can't get their heads around that. So how much from a personal point of view, how much research study that has to go into that for you to feel like you can actually position the markets correctly? Uh, yeah, I think you need to be following the game regularly. You can't just jump into tennis and expect to do it. And I, I think um, perhaps when I first joined Skybet, you know, back back um, 15 years ago, I don't think that the market actually built enough in for things like surface. I don't think it appreciated when a, a tournament's played at altitude. I don't think there was enough in the market at that stage. I think the market's more mature now, um, and, and that doesn't really happen. There's, there's definitely more experts, tennis experts working for bookmakers, whereas before you may have been a betting expert. You know, the way I explained it, I kind of came in as a betting expert, but I certainly wasn't a tennis expert, but I was able to do a job at the time. I'm not sure that would be the case now if you brought in somebody that didn't have that background in tennis, um, you know, really good knowledge of the game. And like you say, players' schedules, it, it's a sort of thing it's always a bit of a guessing game um and it's it's 
getting the right balancing out there. A player's played a lot. That typically means they've been playing well because they've been winning games and progressing deep into tournaments. But like you say, that that then also brings with it the negative side, which is, is there a bit of fatigue at, at work there? Um, if a play, you know, we know, we know ahead of the Grand Slam, sometimes we, we see some of the better players uh, early in those tournaments, happy to kind of tank and, and um, let themselves go out early, conserve their energy. They know they've got two weeks of five set um, play ahead. Uh, I, I don't think it's a secret that some of the players maybe come with a little bit less motivation because, you know, legitimately they're, they're there preparing themselves to win a Grand Slam um, and want to be a little bit careful that they don't actually play seven days in a row in the lead up to that. Um, you know, and, and that scheduling is really important. And I definitely think that is, is part of the market these days, um, whereas 15 years ago, perhaps it wasn't in there enough in the pricing. The listeners are sitting there saying, look, this is nice. You've We've talked about gender equality nice nice subject you know fantastic you know and you know nice to hear that we've talked about bringing together markets and 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 how this works but they're sitting there and they're saying come on dan get into the get into the real meat of this because we talked about we've mentioned indian wells we've mentioned wimbledon but the reality is they're not necessarily susceptible to match fixing when you're at that end, you know, Andy Murray doesn't need to match fix, you know, Andy Murray, I haven't seen his bank balance, but I would would imagine there's a few zeros at the end of his bank balance that he doesn't need to worry about. Whereas we go down the levels, and this is certainly what I've seen as, as we go down the levels, as soon as, as soon as that became the market, the ITF 15 Ks, the ITF 25 Ks that I know in the tennis world was like, Oh no. Now that you can bet on this because you're winning the tournament at that level and you're winning 1300 pounds to win the tournament, you know, you're losing first round, you're winning 80 pounds. So all of a sudden somebody comes into your world, says, Hey mate, you're the top seed this week. You lose this match. 5k comes your way. It starts to become very appealing to that sort of person. As someone who's involved in the industry, I would imagine in the tennis world, you've seen a big uptake in match fixing since the markets opened at that level of tennis. Um, I think I think the first thing to say is um, th- this is kind of the way that, that people would like it to be represented. It sells newspapers, doesn't it? And if there's ever a story of match fixing, that will sell newspapers and yeah. it will be written in a bad way. The reality is, fortunately, most people that are playing tennis are in the game for the love of the game. And actually, match fixing is extremely rare. So it's a tiny, tiny proportion of matches that, that, that suffer from that. But of course, it does go on. It does go on. And tennis, um, I guess at that level, there's there's two ingredients that have come together that make it more likely to happen in that scenario. Um, you've got a game which is essentially one player versus another player. It's very different to, to football or rugby, where a whole team would perhaps need to be involved for something untoward to go on. In this situation, you've got one yep. player that would be entirely in control of whether a point is won or lost. Um, and that is, a you know, of course, one, one important ingredient. And the second you touch on, if the prize money is so low, um, that players start to look elsewhere to, to make it pay if they're trying to become professional players, but they can't make it pay. Um, of course, there's a temptation there. So absolutely. And it, it's similar with some other sports um, where there'll always be this risk. Table tennis, I, I, you know, I'd say is, is another one that we, we do um, always watch out for. And yeah, it, it's an element of the game that we have to deal with. Now, of course, 
like I think like you alluded to at the start, bookmakers are kind of seen as the enemy. One thing to remember here as well is usually when there's match fixing goes on, bookmakers are the victims here because yeah. people are trying to win money from bookmakers. Um, but it's also incredibly important for the industry to stamp this out. And when I say the industry, I talk about the betting industry, but also the tennis industry, because nobody wants a sport with this with this sort of thing going on, do they? It, it undermines the whole integrity and the substance of the sport. Uh, um, so I, I think really the onus lies on um, tennis and bookmakers working together and setting up the right structures and the right conversations to make sure that we can get on top of this, we can share information, we can make sure that we've got memorandums of understanding that if things are, are untoward, we can share that data, we can identify it, and we can actually hold the, the culprits accountable. And that's something that's definitely developed significantly over the last 10 to 15 years the tennis integrity unit that was first formed in 2008 so that was 15 years ago that was when we really started to make some positive moves towards saying okay let's make sure that we can gather this data understand what's going on um, and and see what we can do about it um, and um, more recently last year the international tennis uh, integrity agency was founded um, and they run the tennis anti-corruption program and that's something that all the players go through um, starting to understand how do they insulate themselves from the risks that this posed because it's not always about the players trying to get a financial advantage of course there are also sort of more underground and, and dangerous um, things at play yeah. um, you know I'm sure we all remember that the controversy about um, Nikolai Davidenko, Davidenko yeah. um, it was, it was a, a very high profile one where nothing was proven and I must state that um, you know straight away nothing was proven no charges were finally brought um obviously there was a lot of people looked at that and thought there, there were some things that didn't feel right at the time and and i think the, the general feeling there was somebody like davidenko didn't need to make money from it so if something had gone on was there another reason you know were there threats to him or his family if he didn't yeah. cooperate um and I, th I think that this this founding of the um anti-corruption program I think that helps to educate players in ways to ensure that they don't become the victims of those sorts of things um, yeah, and, and no, that's no, really absolutely. important to understand as well, you know, making sure that there's support there early on for players that do feel threatened by something that who can they go and talk to? Yeah. Um, and what what education can we put in for players as well within the game, as well as, you know, the betting industry as well outside of it. And I think that's very important. I think it's a really good point. And I think if I go back, go back a good few years, it was the first time I'd experienced it. I, I was I was a coach and I was actually in Preston. And uh, not uh, not the most glamorous of tennis destinations, but as one of the top seeds was walking on the court, a guy followed him and we all saw it. It was in the cafeteria. Nobody heard it. But after the match, the top seed, who was it was very open and honest on this. He went and reported it. And as he was walking on the court, he was offered X amount of money to, to throw the match. And, and I think my, because there will be some young tennis players out there listening to this. And if you, if you take one penny from somebody to lose your integrity, you're, you're now in, <laughs> you know, once you're, once you're in. And I think that's another thing that we've seen is, and, and I know there's been some quite big groups of whether they're Spanish players, whether they're French players. And there's often someone who has been desperate has, has seen the lights of this, I'll do it once, I'll, I'll make this money once, and then it, it doesn't quite work like that because you then become the ringleader and your next job is to bring in five more players. 
and then your next job is to make sure and 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 that's what 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 I've certainly seen happen from from my not not so much experience close to it but from from hearing hearing on the ground so i think your point there dave on protection of players is very very important here as well so so tell me how how is the industry the the gambling industry working with the governing bodies to to be able to make sure that this is a a safe a safer place but also a place full of integrity as well um, first of all, I, I can't comment too much about things that, ha- you know, the, the stuff you talk about there, I can't really comment too much about that. It's not something I've, I've ever really seen. Um, I've always worked at a bookmaker, um, never really at the tennis event. So I can't really comment too much about that. What I can say is working with the International Tennis Integrity Agency, there's a there's a system now where any suspicious betting activity, anything that looks out of the ordinary, there's now processes for reporting that, raising it, and not just raising it within the industry, but raising it to the tennis authority so that that information is shared and discussed with the governing bodies of tennis. And it's only by having a little bit of that transparency that it actually puts, uh, it, it joins up those conversations. Otherwise, if everybody's working in silos, it's impossible to join anything up and it's really impossible to ever prove anything um you know if, if if there's no paper trail um and there's, there's no talking to each other then it's, it's very difficult to ever actually substantially change things so i think having that process for reporting those patterns start to emerge if, if we say okay well these are the three incidents we've seen in the last three months and the same name keeps coming up then a pattern starts to emerge and, yeah. and investigations can really really start at that point yeah because I was going to say, well, tell the listeners what what does suspicion look like. So if you're working, you're working at your desk. You've got your laptop on. You you're following matches. You're following markets. How how clear is that? And and what is in place on on your side to to be able to red flag that? So at a bookmaker, all the bets that are coming in are seen and there's, be- there's various filters that, that are, are applied. So you can see larger stakes. You can see stakes that have come out of proportion with the customer's usual activity. You can see runs of, of money all on the same sort of thing from lots of different accounts or from lots of different areas of the world. So there's lots of things in place like that. I think having the, the reporting mechanisms adds an extra layer because it means that all bookmakers are feeding into this. So at Skybet, we wouldn't see the, the bets or have any knowledge of the bets that Bet365 or lad books were taking for instance but if all of us saw something out of the ordinary and all reported it at the same time then that's obviously a key one Um, another thing is when there is something reported all of the other bookmakers are alerted to it and told there's something going on in this match that one bookmaker thinks looks out of the ordinary can you have a little bit more of a detailed view of that match and see if anything stands out to you something that perhaps wasn't um, stand out at the time but when you look retrospectively you think okay well there was a lot of brand new accounts that had never never existed before have opened and first yep. thing they've done is, is bet on this match that's perhaps a low grade match why have they suddenly done this so it starts to build build that sort of pattern what sort of what sort of money will go on a 15k women's match first round in portugal can you give us any figures on that? Is there a certain amount? And let's let's say this ten thousand goes on, but then if it, it sometimes spikes up to two hundred thousand, is there is there any any figures you can share like that? I probably can't share numbers like that. What, what yeah. I can say is that um, it's 
always a challenge to spot things because depending on the time of the day, other things going on, stakes change. Um, we will have customers that are on that thinking, what would I like to bet on today? And if the FA Cup finals on there, that may take all of the interest. And there's very little interest left for yeah. low grade challenge stuff. But if you came on um, on a Monday afternoon and there's very little football on, there's no majors, we haven't got any master series tennis, then of course the stakes sort of gravitate towards the, the lower end of stuff. And then there's more naturally, you know, genuine stakes being placed on those matches so it's, it's very difficult to say it depends on time of day as well of course but yeah you know, the, the sorts of patterns we would look like is, is things that are out of proportion with what a customer would usually stake runs of money all at one time certainly runs on certain markets so so we'll see you know good business on on a match result or on set betting but if suddenly a load of money was to come on the next game winner um, that might be something yeah. that, that would start to, to alert the red flags. But like I said earlier, this, this sort of stuff is very rare. Um, it, it makes great headlines when it happens and when somebody gets a sniff of a story. But actually, it's really a, a very small part of the game. And unfortunately, we, we do operate uh, in a very, very clean game, by and large. Yeah. Um, and there's also an onus on, a, on the bookmakers to help make this sort of thing more difficult. So when there's a lot of tennis on at once, a bookmaker has the option to decide, do I offer next game betting on everything? Or actually, is there plenty of high level tennis on at this this moment in time but really we don't want to put ourselves in that position um and let's not have those markets on some of the lower grade tennis which is certainly something that goes into the um the decisions on a day-to-day -day basis on what sort of market depth a bookmaker might offer um what their bet limits might be as well if you went into to a you know you took your fifteen thousand tournament if you went in and said customers can bet to win a hundred thousand pounds on these matches there's a very different scenario than actually saying okay well these are low grade things there's not going to be lots of interest so let's put a relatively low win limit on it um mm -hmm. you know and, and really that that's a sensible thing to do all round really yeah, no, so it's an, another lever that can be pulled that helps absolutely. bookmakers protect their risk. It helps protect the integrity of the game. All, all of those sorts of things. It's, yeah. There's a lot of common sense decisions that yeah. can but come they in. They go there. hand in hand, don't they? If the if the if the risk is protected, then and the the amounts aren't that large, then it probably stops people from wanting to cheat because in any line of business, and, and this is a big belief of mine. Any time there is big financial gain to be made, people will look to push the boundary of, of the truth and pu push the boundary of what should be accepted. You know, so uh, uh, why would gambling be any different? Why would, why would sport be any different? You know, and I think why would business be any different? And I think as much as we would like to think that doesn't happen, I, I think it does. And, and Dave, just one, one last thing, because I, before I want to, I want to talk more about the relationship between tennis and betting companies and why it's a good thing, you know, and why, why they do it, you know, and I want, I want to get into that, but, but my, but the, the, the one topic that I would, I guess the dark side that we've seen, and as you say, it makes good headlines. There's been some documentaries done on this. You see them at tennis tournaments, you know, and I've always wondered why are all these people on their mobile phones, like hanging off buildings? Like, this is weird. You know, why? And then obviously it comes to it, court siding, you know. And so explain to the listeners what court siding is and one, how they have tried to beat the bookies and two, how you've been able to counter that. 
Yeah, so um, that's interesting. And it will probably actually lead a little bit into what you mentioned, talking about the relationship between bookmakers and, and, and tennis, actually, in a moment. Um, courtside, and it's all about speed. So um, yep. historically, when a bookmaker bets in running on tennis, um, a, book need, a bookmaker needs to watch what's going on. And the, and the traders that are set in those odds um, are sat in a trading room. In, in our case, it, it's Leeds and there's trading rooms in, in London and Manchester. Um, and they're watching televised, televised pictures beamed in. Um, and those pictures, of course, by the time they reach us, they've, they've left Wimbledon. They've been beamed up to a satellite in the sky and it's come back down. And, and all of that's taken a couple of seconds. It's very fast. It's gone all the way up, up into the atmosphere and come down. Um, but two seconds, uh, typically. Um, can be a little bit more in some tournaments, depending on the, on the technology that's being used. If you can bet quicker against a bookmaker than those televised pictures are, are reaching the bookmaker, then it, it becomes a, a bit of a, a race. There's various things that can be done to, to mitigate a bookmaker's risk there. So that's why you'll normally see an in-play delay when you place a bet. That protects us to, to a certain level. But the vast, vast majority of customers are not doing this. And so a bookmaker wants to offer the best possible product to that customer um, and to 99.9% of customers. So we want to have bet delays really low, make it a frictionless experience, make it entertaining and exciting. Customers don't want to sit there hitting a button and then wait 10 seconds to place their bet. So we're always trying to balance. Can we get that bet delay as low as we possibly can, but accepting that there will always be some people that are trying to, to bet faster than, than you yeah. have the pictures for. Um, and there's a fine line there between what's a competitive advantage and fair game and what starts to to leak into sort of fraud and illegal behaviors in practice i don't think any cases have ever been brought successfully against courtsiders um Is that I, know right? that, I know that the, the, the typical um conversation is around the the game's rights holders that are selling that data to bookmakers usually trying to to make sure this doesn't go on because obviously it undermines the data that, that they're, they're selling and bringing in funds to the game um but it, it's certainly a difficult one to prove um and it's a difficult one to say where where is the line what's okay what's not okay um okay. so yeah it's been it's been an interesting one over the years yeah because on on that i mean i watched a documentary on this i don't know if you've seen that documentary but it was i mean it was mind-blowing it really was to see how to see how they did it and, and and like you say the speed in which they did it you know somebody sat in a room uh, it might be in Leeds, it might be in Egypt, it could be anywhere. And then their their friend at the court side, you know, sending through that information. And I think it's quite interesting what you bring up about, about the data company, because tell me this, and this is something I've never fully understood. When the umpire, and this is why I've always thought umpires become quite important in this. And I know there was a there was a case against an umpire in Tunisia two or three years ago. Yeah. Because I guess you don't get that data until the umpire inputs that on his on his iPad, which then sends the message back to Leeds to Skybet or wherever it might be. Uh, to say that that point is now finished is is that correct yeah that that's that's kind of right yeah so so um the, the scenario that i've just explained to you when, we, when we'd watch off tv that's really something of the past and that's something that's actually changed the technology because courtside in was starting to become more frequent um when you were just fighting against tv pictures it was i guess it was probably quite easy to beat beat that because tv pictures by the by the nature of how they're produced they're heavy processing so it takes a while to condense that message send it up bring it down and then transpose it back into a television picture whereas information about a point being won or lost is a, is a very small 
uh, amount of data actually so the umpires part of, of their role and this this is partly how tennis has worked with bookmakers to monetize their product because they're, they're there they've essentially got their very own courtsider the umpire yeah. um so yeah one of one of the the, the jobs uh, of the umpire is to to put in that score and that drives both the scoreboards you see in these big events that this crowd will see and it also simultaneously transmits that data for a number of purposes bookmakers being one of them but also of course live score sites you can go to flash scores live scores those sorts of, of sites are taking that data um, sky sports and the bbc that have got live scoreboards on theirs um, that's all being driven by by that same data source coming from the umpire's chair um, and so yeah that's absolutely something that's that's helped to reduce that delay in transmission from the from the venue to bookmakers um, and meant that we can update our, our odds much more quickly and make sure that betting's available for, for customers quickly after that and for the listeners if if the penny hasn't dropped yet yes there has been an umpire or two that has delayed that time of input you know so the point the point is finished it's what is the official score is 1530 but because the umpire hasn't quite inputted the score yet it's 15 all and and in that little four five six ten second window that is where somebody now gets gets the next bet in. And, and that was certainly something that, that was starting to happen or so, certainly something that was being accused of, of, of happening a, across the board. And, and it's something that I know that as, as gaming companies, as, as the integrity units are, are, are working towards stopping all of, all of those little bits, as you rightly say, Dave, it's, it, is, it is a clean sport for, for the most part. And I think we, we all need to remember that, you know, there is going to be people that are trying to push the limit a little bit, but that brings me on to the question that again, I like to ask the questions that I think the listeners are, are thinking. Can, and, can I just come in on that one, Dan, just before yes. we do? Um, in, in that, I mentioned that, you know, there is a fine line between um, a competitive advantage and what leaks into fraud and illegal behaviour. And I think the second example you used there, I think think that is, is a much cleaner um, understanding of what is fraud and what is yes. unacceptable. Uh, somebody sat courtside betting as quick as they can. Mm, okay, um, they may know they've got a competitive advantage, but are they doing anything wrong? The point has been played and they're, they're betting with a bookmaker. There's definitely an argument that, that that's okay. I think there's an argument that it's not okay as well, but there's, there's an argument to be had there. I think it's a lot clearer if an umpire whose job and responsibility it is to put in the points quickly, who's working for a company who are being paid for this, uh, for this data, and they're m- deliberately manipulating that, I think at that stage you get into a much clearer understanding in law that, that that's starting to become fraud and illegal behaviour. So that's easier to take, you know, to take action on. And, and certainly I know, I know that the tennis governing bodies would, would look to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if in, in those cases it, it did come to the legalities and if somebody did, was proven guilty on that. But that was certainly what the word the word on the street was that that, that was happening, yeah. you know, and that's obviously something we just can't have in our, can't have us having our sport at all. Absolutely. And, and from a, from a bigger picture piece, there's somebody cynical listening to this. I guarantee it. So I'm speaking directly to you. Um, and, and I understand that, you know, we've all, we've all got our views and we, we'll all, we'll all look at things the way that we like to look at things. And, and what they're saying is, 
So why why did tennis even need gambling companies? It just they should just get rid of them completely. Like that's you know we don't need that that the potential for corruption. You know tennis should just be a traditional sport. Just let people play. So so why why does tennis need gambling companies? And and why is it a a mutually beneficial relationship? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And you know everybody will have their opinions, won't they? So. I, I, Cynical, some would say, some, some would say that that's their opinion, and, and that's absolutely fine. Um, I think there's two things I'd say on that. I'd say, firstly, there are millions of people that enjoy a bet in the UK and you know, millions more worldwide um, that do so week in, week out, completely responsibly, you know, a couple of pounds here and there. Absolutely fine. No problems um, at, at all with that. So gambling it may be billed, billed as the devil in the media very often. It's, it's an easy target. It's certainly an easy political target as well. Um, but by and large, most people and, and a great number of people do enjoy it. So it, it's a really valid form of entertainment. Um, if tennis didn't work with bookmakers, would bookmakers stop betting on tennis? Um, I, d- I don't think that would happen. And I think if you look back a decade or a couple of decades ago, those relationships between the, the com- uh, between tennis and bookmakers didn't exist. Um, and, and you could still bet on tennis back then. Um, it makes sense for them to talk to each other and work together. We've already covered, obviously, that the benefits about making sure that, that we can stamp out any corruption by sharing knowledge and, and working together to educate people in those areas. Um, but there's also the benefits of the exposure that bookmakers help generate for tennis. There's millions of people betting on tennis every week and they see bookmakers promoting it Um adding another dimension to the game, putting money into it. So the, um, you know, the deals that we, that we have to IMG and um, you know, to get, get the fast data, um, that puts millions and millions of pounds back into tennis, which is then spent developing the game. The organisations can then use it at grassroots level, developing stadiums at the main tournaments, all, all of those sorts of things that go on. That helps to generate the prize money as well, which you know, always improves the standard of tennis. The more money that, that players are playing for in any sport, we know that the standard goes up. That's something that's always happened. You look at even things like darts, where you know there's not really any coaching happens in darts, but you look at something like that, as more money's gone into the sport, the quality of the game has increased and increased. And I think the same is, is true of tennis. Um, so by working together and almost accepting that, that yes, there is, there is some dark sides of things. There's some doubts, there's some dubious um, areas of it. But hopefully, as I've explained earlier, it's a really very small part. And the net benefit, really, I, th- I think of the, of the organisations working together, actually make sure that the money that bookmakers do do make on, on this sort of thing gets brought back into the game and, and shared around in, into the game. Yeah, I mean, they, they from a from a tennis perspective, you know, you're telling it from a from a gaming company perspective, but from a tennis perspective, the the word, and again, I can't speak with factual information here, but the ITF, the International Tennis Federation, which is which is almost the governing body that that brings tennis together from grassroots through to through to the two hundred in the world level would not be in existence without the money that they have received from my, my understanding is they have the relationship with the data company. So they sell the data 
And then yep. from there, then the data, the central data is then sold out to all of the different different companies. Is that yes. is that correct? Yeah. So yeah, so, yeah, that's as I understand the structure of it. Yes. So, but of so, course, the, the money coming in at the top essentially gets fed in from bookmakers as well as it does from media companies, um, streaming. Of course, people want to absolutely. you know watch these things. You, you go to a, you know not just bookmaker sites, but you can stream tennis in in other ways um, and watch this. Also, the, the you know the the money that comes in from the score sites, the live score sites, you know, they have advertising. Yeah. That's how they make their revenue typically. Yeah. Um, and that allows fans to just follow what's going on. That That's obviously nothing yeah. to do with bookmakers. Um, so there's, there's various sources of those funds come in by the, the data from, you know, the data distribution company, and then they they handle all of that. And I suppose that's that's made it easier for tennis to distribute their, their data. If, if you're a company or an organization with that data, it's much easier for you. you, you you're rarely experts in the technology of data distribution. So um, it makes sense to have a, a company that come in that help you distribute that, help you you know, market that most effectively and send it out to all of the sorts of organizations that might want to purchase that. But I just think, so if we talk, so again, for, for everybody listening, whether you agree with it or you don't agree with it, the, the governing bodies aren't able to, 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 to put on these events, to provide the, the, the structure, to provide the ecosystem to, to grow without it, you know, is, is the reality because it comes down to supply and demand at the end of the day, you know, and, and, and I hear all the time, People saying tennis players are underpaid at that lower level. Yeah, I, I agree. But the money has to come from somewhere. So how how is it going to be created for somebody 450 in the world to make money? Now, yeah. I mean, you'll know more than me, Dan. I don't, I don't know how many events you attend at that level, but I, I imagine the crowds are quite sparse. And really, no, the, the game no, of there's, nobody there, is there? There's no ticket sell, sales. There's no there's no TV rights. You know, as for, for starting point. So in in reality, there's no real sponsorship money. So in reality, it's almost the sole source of income for for those events to run and for prize money to come through. You know, and 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 I think if we now, if we talk about during the pandemic, you know, during the pandemic in the UK, they they brought, I don't know if you're familiar with the UK Pro League. Which, which was which was an amazing thing that came through because what it did, this is very specific to the British tennis players, but they were able to play these events where the winner was getting six, seven, eight thousand pounds to win to win these events. And, and on the back of that, now you you get prize money like that, it attracts the higher level players. The higher level players that have more high profile names faces now starts to potentially attract, TV coverage, you know, more social media coverage. Now we start to attract more sponsors. So the whole ecosystem of the sport starts to work. Now the money from the UK Pro League was all through selling the data. You know, that's where that's where it started. And everyone in the pandemic said, oh, my God, why don't we have more tournaments like this? The reality is that's for the relationship to work. That's what's had to happen. And, and I think it's important people in the industry understand that the same with these UTR events that they now have. And there's and there's more different level of events that are starting to come up to rival the monopoly of the ITF, ATP, and WTA. Now, in order to do that, that the money has to come from somewhere, and and I think we we need to appreciate that the the, the gambling industry is playing a big big role in that, and and in turn draw, drawing our sport. Um, so so 
in terms of in terms of that, where does it go next? You know, I, I guess this is, you know, speaking to you, Dave, it's something you seem very passionate about. I don't see you running away into a different industry anytime soon. So so where does the relationship go next over the next three, four, five years? Um, where does it go next? That's an interesting question. It's not one I'd really thought about and we, we talked talk previously. Um, where does it go next? Well, I, I can tell you where the gambling industry is going, I suppose. The gambling industry, um, I think over the last probably five to 10 years has taken massive steps to make sure that it is conducting itself in a much more socially responsible way. And I think that we'll see that in terms of all of the relationships we have, whether it's with tennis governing bodies, whether it's how we deal with our customers, whether it's how uh, the tools we put in place to protect themselves, think that things like that. Um, and I think we'll continue to see that the industry move in that direction. Um, I hope that that means that, that sports that have maybe over the last few years, as gambling's become, you know, like, like you introduced at the top, a little bit taboo, um, something that many people don't approve of, don't like. Um, you know, there is, there is that, um, that lobbying against the gambling industry that consistently goes on. Um, hopefully, by behaving in the right sorts of ways, the responsible sorts of ways, hopefully we'll start to see sports um, change that they don't want to have have almost have us at arm's length that actually we can start to to make sure that it everything that we do is done in a responsible way and that includes not just how bookmakers deal with their customers but how bookmakers work with tennis and tennis governing bodies you know we, we talked earlier a really good example is the anti-corruption program you know making sure that people from in the industry help feed into those education programs and things like that and i think we'll see more and more of that as, as years go on uh, it's, it's, so, it's so important for all of our, you know, the integrity of sport, but also the integrity of the betting industry as well. And, and if we ever get to the position that people don't trust that, then that's not good for the betting industry, is it? Um, so, it so it's just as important for, for both sides that, that that's something that works really, really well. I massively appreciate you coming on. I think, as I said about this podcast, it was how do we look at the sport from all the different lenses, get under, understand it a little bit more. And and, and whenever I spoke to anybody on, on the gambling side of things, it was, oh, no, no, I can't speak about that. Oh, no, no. So which what that builds is the taboo. You know, that builds that feeling of, oh, well, there's obviously something not right there. There's something that's yeah, going we can We can only progress and get better if we have these conversations, can't we? And we, we actually say, OK, well, there is some challenges. Um, they're not necessarily the biggest problem. But if they're there, we need to, to, you know, to understand what can go on, what can improve, how can we make sure that that actually tennis and betting can be good bedfellows and work well together and actually improve the game as a result um, and make sure that any associated problems are stamped out or minimised. And we can only do that by being honest and talking about it, can't we? And we've, we've looked at we've looked at the, the match fixing side of things, but I, but I do think and I know you've said, Dave, on on a few occasions that it, it's not. It's not something that we see lots of, um, but but at the end of the day, I think a lot of tennis fans, one of the things they really don't like about gambling money going into the sport is when we hear about these these stories of people being seriously affected by gambling, you know, the the addiction side of it. And and yes, gambling can be fun, but it but it does ruin lives and it, it's ruined a lot of people's lives over the years. So so what what's in place, say somebody like a place like Skybet, what's in place to to prevent this addiction and to and to spot when people are starting to go down that path? Um well, like you say, yeah, um, 
it's it's a very small percentage of people have gambling problems, but it's a very important um, aspect because anybody that is affected, it's obviously a very serious issue. Um, and I think for that reason, it's so important that we have regulation in the industry, that we have conversations ongoing all of the time about learning how can we improve this situation um, and it's something certainly in my time in the industry I've seen a, a dramatic change in, in how seriously the industry takes this sort of thing um, in terms of the regulation so all UK operators are regulated by the gambling commission um, and that means that there's a level of oversight to make sure that everybody adheres to um, set standards um, and puts in place various measures that will ensure that all of our customers have an adequate level of protection um, that, they, that they can use. And that in, involves a number of, of things that we can put in place. Um, at Skybet, um, we've got a, a number of these. So we have a self-exclude option, which allows customers to decide that they want to self-exclude from one or more of our products. So that could be just betting. It could be just a casino, or it could be all of our products. Um, and that allows them to exclude for a significant period of time from six months to five years. Um, we also have cool off functionality, which allows you to put a shorter term um, opt out on your account that basically says, I, I, you know, I've been punted for a little bit too long. I want to take a break from this now and, and opt out for um, a shorter period of time. We uh, always ask our customers when they uh, register with us um, to consider putting a deposit limit on their account. So that limits how much you can deposit in any period of time. Um, various options when when you register on that um, and that's something if you wish to make a change to that in the future um, there's actually a few hurdles you need to, to, to go through to make sure that people can't just change that in order to then actually start to deposit more so you have to really think about that and decide if you do want to improve uh, increase that there's a period of time it takes for us to change that we also ask that you ring and speak to somebody and at that stage that there'll be a review of the account to make sure that, that the customer knows what they're doing um, what else do we have? We have a profit loss, which shows on all accounts. So we make it highly visible to customers what they're winning and losing. That's something we developed, uh, I think, probably about 18 months ago to make it really clear. Um, so customers aren't ever lulled into that false sense of security. They think they're winning when they're not. You know, they can see accurately what are they winning or losing over a period of time. Reality check is another tool that we have in place. Um, so this is particularly pre uh, prevalent on casino games where customers can opt for a reality check that pops up and tells them when they've been on site and logged in for, for a certain period of time. Then we can set that from 20 minutes to, I think it's two hours and it pops up continually if you have any sessions that, that exceed that time. Um, and also affordability checks. This is something we've been increasingly developing um, in recent years. Um, we've particularly applied it to younger age groups where we know that um, customers are more at risk. Um, and so this is something that's in place to make sure that um, within certain age groups, you can't deposit more than a certain amount of time in a certain period. And this is something to basically prevent customers starting to spend more and more. And of course, we have lots, lots of other systems in place where we monitor customers' behavior. And if we see things like stakes, accelerating we'll contact those customers and offer advice and refer them to to various bodies that can help um, and there's there's increasingly large numbers of, of those around um, people like gamstop which is um, a network um, that's been set up that allows multiple operators so different bookmakers can sign up and offer customers tools that allow them industry-wide exclusion so if you decide you've been having too many bets with bookmaker a you can go and set it up with gamstop and they'll also help you block all the other bookmakers in the industry so you can actually kind of you don't, you don't want the situation where you can exclude yourself from one bookmaker and then immediately go on and, and have a problem with another do you so that, no, that's no, that's no. one of the systems that allows us to share that data with the customer's consent to say well let, we'll help you exclude from everybody and put place things like app stops so that you can't go on to uh, your smartphone and enter and you know, go into any book any other bookmaker um, yeah, sites I, I, 
I think the thing that jumps to me there, Dave, and it's it's great to hear that there's there's lots that's in place, but so much of that seems to be self-exclusive. You know, I, I, I'm going uh, exclude, uh, to exclude myself myself from something, whereas I guess what we know from addiction, you know, if we take if we take alcohol abuse, if we take smoking, if we take drugs, you know, these these type of addictions, which which gambling is right up there with with those things in terms of deaths and difficulties that it leads to. You have a desperate individual at that point. And if the if the if the individual is desperate, they aren't going to admit to it. They're gonna they're gonna try and find find ways to be able to do it to try and get themselves out of the trouble that they're in. So if we take the example of of match fixing, you know, being able to see those those patterns jump up, you know, you can you're following those. I guess it's fairly easy, and you've just mentioned it there to find those patterns of of an individual. You know, is there ever a time where where the industry actually steps in and stops somebody from from gambling because they can see that it's going into dangerous waters? Um, I, I think it's, it's a difficult question to answer. I think a lot of the evidence and the research that's gone on in this area suggests that if you put in place blocks uh, on behalf of a customer, very often it drives them to somewhere else. So I, I do think the most successful way to help people is to present enough tools, things like the profit loss account, the reality check, present those and help the customer identify that themselves. Of course, that's not going to work every time. I, I fully accept that. That's certainly the research and the guidance we've been given over the years um, from a lot of the evidence and the reviews of it. Whether we'll ever get to the situation where we can industry-wide step in and block a customer, I, I think possibly that's something that will come out of the uh, the gambling review that's going on at the moment, and maybe there'll be some advice on that. One of the problems at the moment is if you block that from all the regulated uh, operators, you drive a very serious risk that you send the customer to um, yeah, unregulated markets, um, and then you've lost any oversight and any you know, real goodwill to do the right thing, I think. Um, so, so it is definitely a, a difficult one. Um, we focused over the years putting in as many um, checks along the way that will hopefully help knit these problems in the bud for customers and give them enough um, tools. We'll also make them um, very accessible. Um, it, it's not something where you have to have a problem before you start to engage with these tools. Um, so, so I think that's been our, our view on that. I've, we've also done an awful lot of um, work to start to identify you know, things like stake acceleration and then physically contact the customer and speak to them. Yep. Um, and I think obviously having a, a conversation with a the customer there, you really need them to, to accept that there's a problem. And that, that's really the first step to, to helping them. And we definitely proactively you know, contact customers where we identify patterns that, that suggest that customer could be at risk and we think they should start to use the tools available. Yeah. Yeah, because it's a it's a it's a difficult one, isn't it, from a business standpoint? Because from a business standpoint, when you if you're looking at just pure numbers, you know that they're probably not a bad not a bad client to have. But from a from a moral standpoint, it's so important that those things are in place. Um, I, I think the culture has changed in that actually, Dan. I, I don't think, and certainly I've not se not seen it at Skybet, where you know where I work. I don't think we would ever think that there's. It's good to have a financial uplift at the expense of a customer. Um, you know, th their well-being comes first. Absolutely, there, there's no customer that, that makes enough difference to the bottom line that that would ever be something that that should come into the thinking. Good. Good. I hope. I hope. I, you know, when I say that, I hope that applies to other operators. I'm sure it applies to the vast, vast majority. Um, but that, that's certainly my experience. You know, you, you don't 
want to take financial gain out of somebody's misery. I don't think there's anybody in the industry that really wants to do that. I hope there's not anyway. And, and what, one more small point as well, Dave, that I don't know if you're familiar with this, but certainly in, in the tennis world, it's, it's quite highly publicised that as tennis players are coming off the court, their social media is receiving all sorts of abusive messages, you know, that are, that are coming from what seems to be someone that's put a stake on a 25K in Portugal. The player that I coach comes off court, they lose 7-6 in the third set. They feel devastated because they're, they're playing to put food on the table for themselves already. And then they open up their account and they're being told all sorts of horrible things as well. That seems to be also maybe a bit of a pattern that some gambling companies, but also tennis, the tennis world can come together to be able to start picking up individuals that one clearly have a gambling problem if they feel they need to abuse the poor 17 year old who's played a match in Portugal, but, but two are, are going to the lengths that we just don't want in our sport as well. Yeah. It's, it's a real shame, isn't it? How social media sometimes sort of drives itself to the bottom. Um, I, I think from the gambling industry, it's quite difficult. We, we don't know who, a, you know, person a is on twitter when there's all this anonymity it's very difficult for us to 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 bring those those and actually put a name to that and actually work out who is this this customer with us or are they even with us or are they with somebody else that's very difficult i i personally think that the world of social media does need to consider being regulated more openly yes, like the gambling commission gambling commission does for for gambling like various other bodies do for financial industries and, and things like this there's there's lots of um industries which require you to have a a level of know your customer um personally i think social media should should be forced to sign up for that um i think there's also sorts of other areas where you know that that would hold people accountable for their actions um you know look at racism uh, on on twitter um absolutely inexcusable uh, but there's an, an element of um, sort of that anonymity that allows people to go out and, and say whatever they want without fear of retribution and i think that actually if we had some element of know your customer we would actually be able to understand those sorts of elements a, a lot better when we do see the these sorts of um, Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts abusing players. It, it's not acceptable. Um, but equally, I think it's important to look and see that there is, um, that, that's often one of the first signs of people that, that might have a problem and that might need a little bit of help. They're, they're perhaps betting a little bit more than, than they can happily lose. Um, because it, it really, you know, it, it should be fun. It should be enjoyable. And if people are getting to that situation where they can't accept the loss, perhaps that's where we get in towards those problems. I and mean, hopefully those customers will then start to pick up and use some of the tools. Hopefully we'll identify them and reach out to them and, you know, put them in the right, right positions. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's a real shame, isn't it? That that starts to sometimes impact on, on players that may have gone out, given their absolute best. And then they come off the court and they're, they're met with this tirade of abuse because, you know, somebody's lost 20 quid on them that, you know, that didn't have that money to lose. Yeah, um, t- Tiny Tim 373 on Twitter I'm sure isn't quite as brave in person as he is on a Twitter account. And, and I, and I think, and I think the point that you bring there around, we all need to be accountable to our actions, you know, and if somebody is doing that and, and if you were able to then going and find out who they are, one, yes, get them banned from social media. It might sometimes goes into abuse that, that the police need to be involved, but three, as you say, if they do feel the need to do that, they clearly, are betting more money than they should be betting 
they clearly are in a place that they shouldn't be in. And actually, maybe they are a danger to themselves as well. So I think that is one that it's, it's, for, it's for another podcast, I think, Dave. I don't think we're going to solve that problem today, but certainly getting people to be open and have to go past certain checks to register who you are on social media would be a really positive step forward. Yeah. And in that environment, it's, it's hard to know who, who maybe has a problem and, and who is just being a bit of a, an over-the-top keyboard warrior because they think they can get away with it on social. It's difficult, isn't it? Um, it it's definitely, I think, a challenge for, you know, for, the, for the next forthcoming few years for, for social media to, to really understand how, how can they um, look at these sorts of things and, and hold people accountable, but also help people that need it. Absolutely. And I, I massively appreciate you coming on. Now, what we have before we finish, Dave, and you are no, no exception, is our quick fire round. So, so, so are you ready? Okay, the, yeah. Okay, let's see how we con- go. Control the controllers, quick fire round. Okay. Your, what's your favourite Grand Slam? Uh, my favourite Grand Slam, I think, is the Aussie Open. Uh, and the two reasons that I would say that, um, I love getting the season started again. It tells me that we're off and running again. Um, but I also love that feeling when you've kind of been up half the night watching things and you get so tired that even though the sun's coming up and the sun's there, you've watched your, your final court, uh, final match. It's finishing at about three in the morning in Australia, but you're tired and you just hit the sack. Um, and I love that when you're so tired because you've watched it all night that you're just done in. I love that feeling. Serve or return? Uh, serve. Uh, statistically, better chance of winning the match if you serve first. What's the highest ever staked sporting event? I am not 100% sure, but I think it would be probably a boxing match. Uh, that's one of the things we see the spikiest stuff. Okay. Uh, yeah, so most, mostly boxing bouts are really, really spiky. People that don't bet on boxing for the rest of the year all suddenly come in and when it's live on Sky. Um, they, they go absolutely monster, yeah. So I have to ask you now on the back of that, in terms of the fixing, the the spikes that you see in, where does tennis fall compared to other sports? Uh, Comparative to other sports, it's one of the more risky sports for a bookmaker, Uh, probably up in the top three. Um, But like I said, um, table tennis is, is certainly one. Um, that we see uh, and we do see a bit with football but obviously football there's so many games on a day it, proportionally it's quite small in football yeah. even, even though the, you know the, it, the actual numbers will be higher because there's so many fixtures going on well I think my football team Dave has been throwing matches for 15 years Newcastle United I, I'd, I'd like the bookmakers to look into them because they, they can't have been that bad for that long I, I can agree with you, Dan. I'm an Ipswich fan, um, so you can imagine how many we've thrown to get relegated, I think, three times in that period. So, <laughs> uh, Roger or Rafa? Uh, it's Roger every time, absolutely. Serena or Venus? Uh, Serena. Red or black? Uh, red. I thought you were going to say green. <laughs> uh, med- medical timeout or not on a tennis court? Oh, uh, I, I think I'm going to have to say medical timeout. I think it's a necessity, um, but I do think that they should do something about the people that game it. Um, and they, they, I don't know how you do that. I'd like to give that a bit more thinking uh, on how do we make sure that uh, you know, there's one or two culprits, aren't there, that, that like to, to carefully time their timeouts. But, it, but you have to have it, don't you? Because you, you don't want people retiring when they could carry on you know, with a bit of, of attention halfway through. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? ATP Cup. 
And if there was one rule change from your lens that you would have in tennis, what would it be? Oh, what would it be? Um, oh, that's a hard question. You said quick fire, and I don't know if I've got a quick answer. Um, uh, we can edit. Uh, we can edit uh, your pauses. Uh, don't worry. I, okay, good. Uh, I think I would like to see. Oh, it's probably something around the tie breaks, isn't it? Um, do we just let the tie breaks carry on? Do we have to stop at seven? They're going to get resolved sooner or later. Is it's a problem when you get like Isner in action against uh, a Pelka or something like that. Uh, maybe it would go on forever. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to pass that one if I can. <laughs> and who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? I think you've got to go out and get Roger, haven't you? Have you got any Paul? Have you got any? I, I, I don't think I don't think I have, but I think if you really, he seemed so nice. I think if you rang him up, just had a nice chat and asked him if he if he'd just spare you an hour or so. I think I think you've got him. I think get Roger on. Come on then, Rog. You've been you've been called out, Mr. Federer. You know, it's time to come. Dave, thank you for your time. I think, like I say, for me, for you to for you to come on, you know, for you to talk so openly. Uh, I, I think is is invaluable insight for for people in the industry, you know. And I think, as with anything, there's always two or three different sides to every single story, you know. And I think, you know, we shouldn't just look at the headline, you know. We should we should dig in and and find out what's actually happening. And I think you've done a great job of giving a balanced view across the board. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. An emotive topic and. As always, I've got Vicky next to me. So I know you have a lot of emotion attached to this topic as well. <laughs> so what were, what were your thoughts? Oh, I mean, I am very much against any kind of betting, gambling. I'm not a better at all. I, it makes me very sad that we're so heavily reliant as a sport, in all sports really, on the betting industry. Um, I, I can see the pros. I know, especially after lockdowns the betting industry has, has kept so many companies afloat really so many sports teams afloat you know not being able to get any ticket sales and that sponsorship has, has been huge but I don't have the answer I don't know you know where the income would come from and from somewhere else but it just never sits right with me especially at football games seeing all the sponsorship banners advertising gambling companies seeing sportsmen on the telly promoting gambling companies it's just never anything that has sat right with me I, I mean I, it was great to hear Dave talk so much and about what they do as a company to try and help people who are who are struggling and and that's brilliant but for me um no I'm 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 not a fan <laughs> Yeah, and I, Without and I, poo-pooing the entire episode, sorry. <laughs> no, but I, I think that's something very personal and maybe it's yeah. something we will bring to the podcast at some point, <laughs> you know, back in the day when I used to gamble a little bit too much, you know, which I'm sure brings brings it all home home to yourself, Vicky, as well. Yeah. And But but it, it brings up a second thing for me, which is, is being a massive area of the podcast, which is control the controllables and you know taking responsibility and if I take my own personal experience where where I was definitely gambling way too much for a, for a time ultimately that's my responsibility you know I, I we you can walk into a you can walk into a, a supermarket and there's lots of sugar left right and center 
you know, and I, I think for someone who's overweight to say, well, it's because it's in my face that they're, they're selling sugar everywhere I go. Ultimately, as human beings, we have to take our own responsibility. And, you know, I can, I certainly don't think morally it's a great industry, but they, you know, I think Dave gets that across very well in terms of where they are trying to position themselves, all of the, all of the different areas that they have in place. But ultimately supply and demand how does how does a sport like tennis survive if there isn't that entertainment factor to it that brings the money in you know how many people watch sport just to watch sport quite a few how many people watch sport because they like the added adrenaline rush of having a bet on the sport that they watch i would argue quite a lot as well so so all of that leads to us almost needing to have something in place that is bringing in the money and bringing in the television money and bringing in the attraction to the sport. And up until now, I haven't seen anybody take place of, of the betting companies. Yeah, that, that's, I think, what, what makes me sad that we're in a position where it, there's no choice. So, it, you know, we're, we're so reliant now. Um, and the rebuttal is, oh, well, there's no other option. And I don't know. I mean, we, we like you, you gave the example of sugar, look at alcohol, look at smoking. There's now much tighter, reg, much stronger regulations on companies advertising on the television, advertising, sponsoring teams, various things like that. But we're not quite there yet with the betting industry. And we, I do think there does need to be much stronger restrictions, much stronger regulations. I mean, there's also the side as well that... Actually, there's a lot of, there's a high proportion of sportsmen and women and former sportsmen and women who do go on to develop gambling problems. Massively. And and, and I think the, 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 the flip side I would just jump in on there, Vicky, is, is around education. I think we're going into a much bigger topic here and, and I don't think this is just a, a, a gambling topic I think this is this is the sports men and women that they come towards the end of their careers and and how do they then deal with life away from the buzz the um, the, the, the bounce the everything that, that the sport gives them you know how do they fill their time you know how do they get their adrenaline rushes how do they feel like they have a purpose and and I, and i think this is part of a much bigger topic of education that we need to put in place for all sports you know when you're coming towards the end of your career it's very scary you know we've had we've had many guests that have talked about that the scariness of of what's next and and falling into these into these bad habits into these taboo subjects is something that that lots of lots of sports people in the past have done and my urge is as part of the organizations whether that's the ITF the ATP whether that's FIFA you know whether that's the Premier League whoever that is that there's a lot more resource goes into educating sports people into what to do with their money what to do with their time you know how how they're going to transition back into the real world and I, and I think that's part of a of a much bigger problem as well it's a subject that I wanted us to at least start to scratch the surface of you know I want us to get under under the skin of the sport 
I'd love to hear all of your thoughts. I'm sure it has provoked thoughts. I'm sure my questioning could have been tougher at times. I'm sure we could have gone down different routes. I wanted to be fair. I wanted to 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 hear the different sides of it in today's episode. I, I hope everyone out there did enjoy it. Please send me your questions. Please send your suggestions of how we can take this a little bit further. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.